Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit, and this is our first show in a few weeks, I suppose. I think it's been a few weeks, and mainly it's because I've been busy with some work, which I'll talk about, and otherwise I got COVID. I somehow managed to go two years without getting it, but uh, then I made the fateful mistake of going to Disney, Disney World and Universal Studios, and naturally I came back and one of the filthy animals inside uh, one of those two places gave it to me. Now, Disney is a trip that I go to every year, pretty much, sometimes even more. I mean, that's how sickeningly obsessed, at least I was, with Disney. I would take my kids, and one time we even went three times in one year, if you can believe it. And I'm, I don't consider myself a completely unsophisticated rube. Uh, nevertheless, I still find myself at Disney. Uh, once, twice, three times a year. And I have to say that looking back, now that I've uh, completed this latest trip, I realize what an utter and complete foolish jackass I've been. I mean, you know, you only have, and this is what I realized on this trip, you've only got a certain amount of time on this earth. Do I want to spend vacations in Disney World? In a place where it's a contrived, it's everything's contrived. You go to Epcot, you're seeing Italy, you're seeing Japan, you're seeing Canada, you're seeing France, you're seeing whatever. But you're not. You're seeing fake shit that's made to look like a reasonable facsimile. You see the Eiffel Tower in Paris in Epcot? It's not the Eiffel Tower. It's about like a third of the a quarter of the height, maybe. It's not nice. And you see the people that normally surround the Eiffel Tower in France. And again, I don't even like the French, but you're not seeing so many ginormously fat slobs with multiple tattoos on mobility scooters when you're in Paris. You go to the Louvre. Now, granted, you're going to see a lot of obnoxious foreigners taking pictures when you're inside the Louvre. I'll leave it at that. I'm not going to go any further so as not to offend because I hate the idea of offending, but, but Disney World is really pretty fucking disgusting. It is. And I don't think I really appreciated it until this trip as I'm walking around and my feet is just, just ground into, into, you know, into beef, hamburger, bloody hamburger. My toes were bleeding from walking so much. And you wait on these lines that are, I don't, hour two hours uh, some of them in universal studios was over three hours not granted i don't wait on lines because i can't wait on lines i refuse to wait on lines i get a guide i overpay they they, they they fucking rape me these exorbitant fees for a private guide for seven eight hours a day and you get to the front of the line but it's too much fun you're exhausted by going to every ride. You think it's smart. Well, this is great, Jeff. You're so lucky. You get to have this private guide. He brings you to the front of the line. You don't have to wait on the line. Well, it's too much. It's 110 degrees out there. The humidity is uh, 99.7%. And you're going on one ride after another, 17, 18 rides a day. Normal people, they wait on line for two, three hours and having heat stroke in the middle of the day because they all weigh 600 fucking pounds. But they only go on, you know, two or three rides for a day. They're waking up at five o'clock in the morning to get on the front of the lines. You don't need to go on these rides so many times. I used to think you did. You don't. Disney World's once, twice. My parents raised me completely wrong. Every possible mistake they could have made, they made. 
yet they knew to only take me to Disney World twice as a kid. And I, and I resented it because I wanted to go every year. Guess what? It took me until this age before I realized they were right. It was the only right decision they ever made. You don't go to Disney World. You see other parts of the world that actually matter. It's a beautiful world out there. There's so many incredible places. Do you think I need to go to, uh, to Mexico in Epcot when I can actually go to the pyramids in Egypt? There's so many amazing places to see that are real in the world. What kind of complete idiot would go to Disney World or Disneyland time and time again when the vacations are so precious or so sparse? You don't, have a, you don't go on vacation constantly. Why would you waste it at Disney World? So all that hit me on this final trip. My kids are, uh, kids are graduating high school. I wanted to give them one last Disney trip, and I overdid it. Too many days, way too many days. We were exhausted. Our tongues were hanging out. And you know they didn't uh, have the same feeling I did, the, 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 the total nausea of being there. But they recognized, you know what? Maybe this was too much. And they're 18. And they recognized it. But I'm looking around this place. These people are fucking disgusting. They're just the foulest. And there's so many of them are in these scooters. And why would you go on a vacation, which is all walking? It's all walking. And, you know, you have to stuff yourself into these little seats on these rides. Why would you go on a vacation, which is all walking and stuffing yourself into these little seats on rides when you can't fucking walk? All right? Is sitting home with a book so bad if you're disabled? I mean, this isn't like, uh, you know, you're like I said, you're not coming to visit one of the seven wonders of the world. You're going to the country bear jamboree. Maybe strive for something more than navigating a crowded theme park with one hand on your scooter and the other hand holding a giant turkey leg. That's like uh, what Fred Flintstone had at the beginning of... Uh, the Flintstones. You put that turkey leg on the side of the car at the drive-in theater, and the whole fucking car turns over. Is that what you want? You want to learn, don't you? You want to see physical beauty. You don't want to see people with tattoos on the lower part of their back, and they weigh 600 pounds. Anyway, I had a guide at Disney. He was a wonderfully nice kid named Corey. And wherever we went with him, he was like parting the Red Sea because we got to go to the front of every line. The Red Sea, if it was like filled with humongously fat people on mobility scooters shoving pies down their throats. But it was tiring. And there was a lot of pride. So much pride in Disney World. My God, the pride. Oh, the virtue signaling. Wherever you'd go, every, every place inside Disney, they're selling you stuff. They got to sell you, sell you, sell you. They got to make money. And it's funny for a place that only cares about money, and that's all they care about, they managed to have a pride set up, you know, for gay pride, month, year, decade, millennium. They had a pride section in every single store with rainbow shit. And like some of the stuff wouldn't be so bad if you, if you thought, you know, like a rainbow Mickey Mouse, you know, that looks kind of cool. Not, you know, not that I was, it was my thing, but once you realize that you're actually advertising for gay pride, you kind of look at it a little bit differently and I'm for the gays. I just don't want to be political about fucking Disney World. It's just Disney World. Can't it just be Disney World? Can't it be innocent and happy? That's why I love Disney World because it was the happiest place on earth. And I grew up, I had a shitty childhood. 
So I wanted to be at the, the happiest place on earth every day of the year. Now it's all political. I don't need that shit. I just don't want it. And no one bought it. No one bought the pride stuff at any of these places. Every single store that I walked into, nobody was even looking through the pride stuff. So Disney, the greediest place on earth, are screwing their shareholders by allotting space in every single store for merchandise that nobody even wants. So I also thought it was ironic was that there was just so much sugar there. They're unabashed into sugar and unhealthy stuff. I went to this place, Space 220, which is this really cool restaurant. Now, the restaurants in Disney World are not for the food. The food is secondary. You're there for the experience. The food tastes like shit. But you're, you're at this Space 220, which is this restaurant where you're going up in a spaceship, and it's all virtual, and you look down, and you, you're, you're leaving the, the Earth 220 miles, and you're going up, and it's really cool. You're into space, and then you get up to the top, and it opens up, and you're seeing like you're in outer space, all the windows, you're seeing people, you know, spacemen floating by and you see the earth and asteroids and all that kind of stuff. It's cool. So, you know, you want to order a drink because you want, you're into it, man. You're into it. You're at Disney. So you want to be Disney for that period. It's a fantasy. So I'm at space 220 and there's this lemonade and it's blue. I got to have some of that. Me and my kids ordered it. Well, it comes with pop rocks. Remember Pop Rocks? It's like just sugar that like pops in your mouth. The, the drink was completely sugary as it is, and they add Pop Rocks on top of it? Why don't they add some fucking insulin also? Or maybe some of those uh, paddles for your chest when you have a heart attack. The drink was disgusting. None of us could drink it. My kids couldn't even drink it. So we pushed it aside. We had a couple of sips, and then we ordered something else, and I ordered an iced tea, and they're like, sugar? No, no. Is it okay if I don't have sugar? Uh, for this one drink. And then there's this other place, the Star Wars bar that looks like the bar from Star Wars with all the weirdos called Oga's Cantina. It's, you know, it's cool. It's very exact to what the Star Wars bar looked like in the movies. But they had this blue milk there that they, they sold you. So of course, we had to have that because we're in Star Wars. We're dead tired. We're sweating like you can't even imagine. It's 110 degrees outside. We got to have this blue milk and they got two cookies on top where the straw goes through. All right. It's not enough that you're drinking blue sugared milk, but you got to have two cookies on top. One isn't enough. No, they want to fatten you up like your Hansel and Gretel and the, and the witch is going to eat you. They got to fatten you up. One cookie wasn't enough. They shoved the straw through two cookies. One wasn't enough. No, they tried to do three, but it, they probably couldn't get straws that were long enough. So you drink this stuff and it's disgusting. Why are they doing this? They want to get people fat? They want to get them unhealthy? They want to kill you? Why would they want to kill you and all they want is your money? If they kill you, they're not going to get your money next year, next month, next week when you come back. So anyway, I'm there and I'm, my kids are just the most stubborn kids. Anything that I want them to do. It's, it's almost impossible to get them to do. They just refuse. They just refuse. So I, I insisted that we get Dole Whips. You know what a Dole Whip is. I'm not going to explain it. If you don't know what a Dole Whip is, you know what? Why don't you look it up on Google? Okay, I got COVID. I'm not feeling great. Just look it up. I'm not going to explain it. But I wanted the orange and white, like the creamsicle Dole Whip. So one of my boys is on Pirates of the Caribbean, and the other one is with me, and we're getting Dole Whips. So I said, I want two of the orange and white ones. 
And the woman comes, and the first one she hands me is all white, vanilla. And I look at her, and she couldn't have been nicer. And I said, ma'am, I'm sorry, but we ordered actually two of the, the orange and white ones, no white ones, no, no vanilla ones. And she looks at me and very sweetly hands me the vanilla one and goes and makes, I thought she would just make one orange and white one. I would have been fine. I mean, come on. It, this isn't like the most important issue in the world. She goes back. I give the, the vanilla one to my boy, and she hands me two more of the orange and white ones. And now I've got an abundance of riches of Dole Whips. And it's 110 degrees, and it's starting to melt a little bit. So, But I'm pretty excited. I'm not going to lie. I've got two orange and white Dole Whips, and this thing is like eating heaven. You're literally licking heaven. So I'm licking it. And I got the other one holding my hand. I'm just like, I'm not going to just throw it out. I mean, you don't throw out a perfectly good, the best Dole Whip ever created, the best flavor. So Jackson, my boy, is eating the, the, the vanilla one, and I'm, you know, eating the other one. And I see that the second one I have is starting to sweat a little bit. So I, uh, you know, I started licking that one. And then I'm licking them both, and I'm knocking them down, and they're slowly getting lowered. And all of a sudden, I realize that I've eaten both Dole Whips to the point that we're at like the cup level. The whole top part is now down to the cup. So I've eaten more than one. And I'm like, you know, look, this is really unhealthy. I'm going to die. I'm going to die from these Dole Whips. Maybe I should stop. I'm a grown man. Do I need two Dole Whips? What? Think what kind of sick fuck you have to be to walk up to the Dole Whip counter and say, no, this is a wonderful, delightful dessert, but one isn't going to be enough. I want two. I'm going to stuff two of them in my face. And now, granted, I didn't do that on purpose, but I am eating two of them. So I'm like, you know what? Enough. I go over, I throw one of them in the garbage. I'm about to throw the second one in the garbage. My hand is inside the garbage can, that metal, you know, with like the swinging front. And I, the second Dole Whip is, is inside. It's in my hand still. It has not touched any of the sides, but it is physically inside the garbage can. And I pull it out. I wanted one more lick. I did. And I, I pulled it out. I looked at myself and I'm like, my God, man. What is wrong with you? Put it back in the garbage. It was in the garbage can. And I threw it in. And I ruefully threw it in. I wasn't real thrilled about it. But I threw it in. And that's damn disgrace. So anyway, we ended up going to Universal for a few days. And naturally, we stayed at a hotel that was made to look like Portofino, Italy. Except it was not Portofino, Italy. And as soon as I got home, the very next day, I got COVID, and it's some kick in the balls. Now, I've been vaccinated twice. I got the booster. I didn't get a fever. I didn't think it was that big of a deal, but I knew that I had COVID because I just felt differently. It was a sickness that I never felt before, very congested. My head was clogged, really clogged. And it's 10 days later, and it's still clogged. And, and the reason I didn't do a, uh, a podcast last weekend is that I had a hard time really concentrating. I felt like I was in a fog is how it felt with this, with this COVID. I never felt that sick. I was sneezing a lot. My nose is still stuffed 10 days later. That's no joke. That was, sniff was real. That wasn't, uh, a, that wasn't like some kind of special effect. But my head is still a little clogged. I don't really think all that clearly. But anyway, it's clear enough, and I wanted enough things have happened that I wanted to talk about. So I'm going to soldier through. If I sound a little congested, it's, this is for you because I care so much. Anyway, a, tr a case that I had before I went to Disney World was the case of Inigo Philbrick. 
It was a sentencing I did a couple of weeks back, right before I left, for a London art dealer who was convicted of stealing $86 million from his clients. And his crime basically was selling more than 100% of the artworks to people. There's investors. They weren't buying just to hang the art in their homes. They're buying it to own a percentage and then flip it and make a profit. It's all business uh, with this type of uh, fractional ownership. So he was selling more than 100% of the artworks to people. And as I said, art's an investment. So uh, the, the investors are buying a percentage and they hope that when it gets sold, they'll get their percentage of the profit back when it's flipped. And beyond selling more than 100% of the, of the artwork that he owned, he was also getting loans based on artwork as collateral, artwork that he no longer owned. So he was duping the banks, getting money that he didn't, uh, didn't deserve because he didn't have the collateral to support the loan. And of course, there were defaults on the loans, and these defaults were like in the eight-figure range. And as I said, the total loss was about $86 million on paper. But it was actually reduced a bit because the artwork actually existed and could be sold to defray some of the losses. But there was uh, questions as to who owned what percentage, all these victims. Some owned a certain percentage. They claimed they owned more. And it was messy litigation is going to exist for years to determine who owns what of, the, of this artwork. And it's obviously expensive and annoying litigation. So the $86 million wasn't certainly the exact figure. It was certainly a little bit less, uh, if not significantly less. In addition, when the walls were closing in on him at the end of 2019, and his fraud was becoming more well-known, and his victims were demanding answers and suing him, and you know, in civil litigation, he uh, allegedly disappeared with his pregnant reality television girlfriend that he went to an island in the South Pacific called Vanuatu a place that had no extradition treaty with the United States. So, of course, everybody just assumed that he was running away, you know, hoping to stay away from ever, which really wasn't true. But anyway, the FBI contacted Vanuatu, and naturally they backed down because what the hell is Vanuatu? And they allowed uh, Inigo to be arrested and brought back to America. I started representing him after he made a bail application with another lawyer and naturally lost due to the issue of flight risk. And at that point, the fraud, when I took over the case, was estimated to be in about the $20 million range, which was very big, but was not like historically big in the art industry at the time when I took the case over. And as time went on and, and more losses were found, the dollar amount escalated until finally one day they said, look, we can prove $86 million in fraud, which was shocking. I gasped. I never dreamed that the case was going to be that big. And this was something that I thought that he would uh, get a relatively reasonable sentence, and suddenly, no, it wasn't going to be as reasonable, and it certainly became a lot more high profile the larger the fraud became. Now, in, in my estimation, I don't believe for a second that Inigo just thought to steal money. I just don't think that was the case at all. He's just not that kind of guy. This was someone who I think he hoped um, that he could pay back most or all of it eventually if his business became more profitable. In a Ponzi scheme, really, in a sense, is that you're you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul back. But again, that didn't happen. And as I said, the fraud was calculated to be about $86 million. And this was a pretty big fraud. And historically, in the art world, this was about as big as it's ever been. And after Inigo was brought back from Vanuatu, he was placed in the federal prison in Brooklyn in the middle of COVID, one of the worst prisons in the country, as I said, in the summer of 2020, when COVID was at its worst. So this was a tough case, and he was suffering inside that prison. Uh, there's massive publicity about the case, and 
just the reports and everything in the press was about how arrogant he was. You know, he's in his early 30s and he's wearing expensive suits and watches and taking private planes and buying expensive champagne, all paid for by the victims he was ripping off, according to the government. This wasn't a pretty picture and the press refused to see it any other way other than the fact that this was just some arrogant, obnoxious kid just, you know, uh, laughing at his victims. And his victims were very vocal, as you can imagine. Many of them had made huge money with Inigo when things were going well, but then they were ripped off and they were pissed off and abused and entitled themselves. Rich people that were getting ripped off, they don't like that. They're very loud, as you can guess. But the sentencing guidelines, which is just an advisory guideline range for the judge, was computed to be 121 to 151 months, over 10 years to 12 and a half. The probation department, who does a pretrial report, a pre-sentence report, excuse me, not pretrial, pre-sentence after there was a guilty plea, uh, recommended 121 months, which was really high. They didn't give him credit for anything. And I think, you know, in my mind, it was because they felt that he was so arrogant. And he really wasn't. I expected him to be arrogant as well. And then I met him, and he couldn't be anything, you know, further from that. He was decent and kind and didn't complain. Polite. Not every client is so polite. And in fraud cases, white-collar cases in New York, actual sentences are usually lower than what the advisory sentencing guidelines call for. But as I said, the press was all over this, and I felt that it had um, if it perhaps even subconsciously impacted the probation department, which is why they recommended such a high number. And this is what happens in these cases in New York if they're high profile. I'll compare it to another case. I had a, a CEO of a bank of a credit union named Cam Wong. He stole $12 million, I believe, but he was stealing from a credit union that serviced firemen and, and police officers and teachers, and it was awful. His guidelines were also 121 to 151, and he ended up getting five years in prison. Um, and I thought that was high even. But again, that was a $12 million fraud. This was $86 million. Awful. And one of the ways we sought to mitigate his sentencing exposure, you know, I realized early that I was not going to get many breaks from the government because, again, high-profile case in the Southern District of New York, they love publicity cases. And if it was a case with, uh, you know, that nobody knew who the defendant was, they're much easier to deal with. But when you've got a lot of publicity, boy, uh, forget it. They're not interested in really doing much for you. So I figured, how am I going to get this thing lower? I, I had to do something. We're not going to fight the case. We're not going to litigate this case because we really had no defense. The only issue might have been the actual loss amount, but $86 million might have been what? You know, $78 million? doesn't change anything at all. So I figured, you know, this is what I'm going to do. This is the, the strategy. I'm going to explain it to you now. He couldn't cooperate against anybody. I mean, he was the, the head of this. He was the leader of this criminality. So and plus, who's he going to cooperate against? People that were below him, smaller fraudsters in, uh, in the art industry? But I figured, you know what? I don't think the government's going to accept him as a cooperator, but I also know that they're greedy and they want to hear from him just in case there's a chance they could get another high-profile prosecution spawned from this. So I said, hey, he wants to sit down and talk with you. And they accepted that. And I never thought that it would lead to a cooperation agreement, and it did not. But he sat down with them five times, 
told him everything that he knew, including everything that he did in this scheme. And he talked about other people because there's so much fraud that goes on in the art industry. And, you know, the shock, the, the art press was shocked that I dared say that, well, you know, I collect rare baseball cards and I have intimate knowledge of auction houses that do you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of, uh, of sales a year. And I know the fraud that goes on. Why? Because I represent some of them. I represented their victims. I know the fraud that goes on there. You know, God forbid the art industry can acknowledge that there's fraud that goes on. There's fraud that goes on. So I felt that the government would go for it. He talked to them. I felt that the government would at least listen to him. And they did five times. He didn't lie to them. He was completely honest. And at the end of the, the five times, uh, normally you hope that you get a cooperation agreement. And the reason why that's important is that you get what's called a 5K1 letter. That means that the government asks for a sentence below the guidelines because of cooperation. But your cooperation has to lead to the prosecution of other individuals. And we weren't getting that there. But if you don't reach that level, you can at least get a letter from the government saying, look, he didn't cooperate to the point of us indicting anyone. But he still provided valuable information, and that helps you get a lower sentence. And look, when you're doing a case like this, you just want anything lower if you can get it, anything at all, anything to lower the sentence. Because when you're sitting in jail, a month is a big deal. It may not sound like a big deal to you, but a month less in jail is a month, 30 days of not being in prison. So I did that, and sure enough, it worked. The government said, you know, look, we can't use him, but we'll give you that letter. We'll say what he did. And, you know, you, again, you have a, a, a guy who's perceived as a deeply unpopular, spoiled rich kid who stole from innocence. You got to get every last inch you can. And if you don't make those efforts, you're just a lazy defense lawyer, which for the most part, most are. And the government also, you know, they were giving us ice in the winter. They agreed because of his, his attempts at cooperation to drop this one count, which charged them with aggravated identity theft. That's because he was forging uh, the identities of other individuals. And that's important usually in cases because it's two years consecutive to the other sentences in the case. But when you're charged with as much of a fraud as Inigo was, removing two years doesn't really mean much because the judge is just going to give you the number he wants to give you anyway. It's not like you're facing 30 days in jail and then the extra two years they have to give you is a big deal. The judge just makes the decision to adjust the sentence accordingly to what he wants. And Sure enough, in this case, when the government said, we also got rid of the aggravated identity theft charge, the judge looked at him and was like, so what? I can give him whatever I want anyway. But that's the government giving you ice in the winter, making you feel like you've uh, gotten something. So as I said, he was facing 121 to 151 months with a statutory maximum of 20 years. Probation recommended the 10 years. And when I tried to start out at the sentencing, I had like 16 pages of notes. Spent a tremendous amount of time going through every last detail of Inigo's life. And you have a strategy at sentencing, how you want to come across, what you want to achieve, and you hope that it's something that the judge goes for. Now, at sentencing, judges usually have their minds made up already when they come out. But I've been in cases where sometimes they say, look, I was planning on giving him X, and you convinced me to give him X minus two years. So I came out and pointing out that the press has, had cast Inigo as this horrible rich person who scammed his clients and showed no remorse, and they did it for a reason. It's just a better story, but that that rigid determination wasn't real, and it wasn't going to change in the press no matter what we did. 
And, and I'll give an example of how the press was with him. And I was trying to explain this to the judge. At his guilty plea, the judge asked him, why did you do it? And he answered honestly. He said, well, I did it for the money, judge, which is an honest answer. And he was pilloried in the press for this. Arrogant, no remorse. What was he supposed to say? Why, would, why do you steal money? You steal it because you want the money. You don't steal it because you want to build churches or wash the feet of lepers. You steal the money because you want the money. That's the right answer. That was the truth. And he just got obliterated for it. And I tried to explain that to the judge. I thought that was the reason why probation came so hard at him, asking for 10 years. I didn't want the judge to give him the 10 years. And the point was that the press is going to blast him no matter what he does. And I didn't want it to subconsciously affect the court, the judge, the way I thought it had affected probation. And I also wanted to explain how this happened, how we got there. How is it that a kid who's intelligent, highly educated from a good family with educated parents with important jobs, end up committing such horribly antisocial criminal acts? This is important. If you're a judge, you want to know is how did this person end up here in front of me? Isn't that important to learn? You don't just show up and you're, you're bad from day one. I thought that it was important to try to lay all that out. And the point is, is that the press had a deep impact on this case, but it was hardly a big press case. I've had the biggest of press cases. This case was 1% of El Chapo, 1% of John Gotti Jr. I had Rashawn Weaver, who was the 14-year-old kid convicted of killing the uh, freshman from Barnard College. Maybe this Inigo case was 10% of even that. But for white-collar cases, this was pretty big. So I start my, my spiel, so to speak, in front of the judge, and the judge stopped me five seconds into it, like literally five seconds. And he said, if the press is so important in this case, um, maybe I need to give him a higher sentence uh, because, uh, you know, if I give him a lower sentence, the press is going to amplify it so much and there will be no deterrence to the general public for committing such a crime, which is just, just, you know, frankly, bullshit. That's just the judge just, you know, squirrely because he, how dare you try to defend your client? How dare you, sir? You know, that was sort of the, the tone that I thought the court took with me, which I thought was ridiculous. You know, this was me making my pitch. Let me talk. You know, you're not going to change your mind. You've got your feelings. You're making them clear. I, I, I thought that was unfair. And he, and he kept stopping me when I was making the argument. I'm, and I kept pressing and telling him that general deterrence for the public and specific deterrence to prevent him from doing this again could be accomplished with a sentence of less than 10 years. That's all I wanted to say. I was just trying to explain why I felt the probation department's recommendation was so long because of the press that it had subconsciously affected their thinking, and I didn't want the same thing to happen to him. I was just laying that out there. And when he finally let me say it, he nodded. He's like, you're right, you're right. I'm sorry for interrupting you. He kept on apologizing to me uh, for interrupting me, but he kept on doing it. And that was telling that he didn't want to hear it. And I started discussing the difficult life Inigo had prior to getting involved in fraud. And he interrupted me about that too. It was very clear. He didn't want to hear any excuses, which he uh, felt were bullshit excuses. He didn't want to hear anything as to how he, what happened that got him there. And I, I finally said, judge, look, you're here to determine how this happened. Don't you want me to lay out how this happened? Do you think he was just born evil? 
that one day he woke up in his 20s and he decided to commit fraud? Or should I try to put this into context? I had 16 pages of notes and he just wasn't, didn't want to listen. So I had to make an executive decision at that point quickly on my feet in front of, I don't know, there were a hundred people inside the, the courtroom. The press was all over. And this is what happens as a defense lawyer. You know, it's like the old Mike Tyson line. Everybody's got a plan until you get punched in the face. And I had to make a decision. Am I going to just continue to be wedded to my 16 pages of notes? I'm on like page two and he's not letting me get a word out. Or am I going to say, fuck it, I'm just going to trash this and wing it. But if you prepare enough, you can wing these things because it's all in your head anyway. And you're drawing from the, the facts and the law that you had written down and you can use it as a basis. So I decided, well, I'm not going to keep pushing into a brick wall, you know, the definition of insanity of doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. The judge was loaded for bear for me. He didn't want to hear any excuses. We had already submitted a massive sentencing memorandum with follow-up letters that largely echoed the arguments I was going to be making then. So he had to read that. He didn't have a choice to yell at the document that I submitted. So I'm like, what am I doing? Let me just move past this. And, and this sometimes, you know, happens. The judges just don't want to hear it. They know the press is there. They want to appear tough in front of the press so that they'll all be lauded as tough on crime, especially in today's society where judges are getting such bad raps for being soft on crime. And I've had instances, as I said, in which judges have changed their mind at oral, oral arguments. You do everything to try to make it better. But you don't want to piss the judge off with dumb arguments because He's going to yell at you, the lawyer, and he's going to take it out on the, the defendant, your client. So, you know, the arguments don't seem dumb when you're drawing them up. But if you're on the stage and you're getting the hook from the only person that matters, the judge, you have to pivot. You don't have a choice. And, and these judges are not the most polite people when they're inside the courtrooms. They don't have to obey standard uh, societal conventions they're gods inside that courtroom and they do what they want so you need to have some care in how you deal with them because in real life if somebody gets snappy with you you yell back at them you can do that to some extent with some judges but these people are human and you don't want to piss them off because again they're immature enough sometimes to take it out on your client and what does that do for you, you yell at a judge you push them because it makes you feel good and then the client who's sitting there, who paid you, who trusts you, is going to do more jail time? It's one thing to yell at them after they've given the sentence, but you don't get that opportunity. You have to be nice, at least polite to them, before they make that determination. They've got a tremendous amount of power with the ability to mete out jail time to your clients. So you have to be careful. And, you know, you talk to the family and the defendant and you go over what your strategy is going to be. And oftentimes they disagree with you. You know, if you don't take, everybody's got an idea. They're all, they've never been a lawyer for a second in their lives. But if, uh, you know, you say something that they think is inappropriate, you're just an asshole. And, you know, tough. I'm just an asshole then. You're hiring me for my experience, for my success inside that courthouse, my success with that very judge. And I'll, I'll give you an example is John Gotti Jr. in his case when I figured out the defense we were going to use, which is him withdrawing from the mafia, the family hated it. They hated it. John loved it. He okayed it. That's all that really mattered. But the family hated it. His mother, his brother, his sister, how dare you disrespect 
John Gotti Sr. by saying that John Jr. withdrew from the mafia. You can't disrespect him. Well, John Sr. was dead. I don't, I don't care about him. I respected John, my client. That's all I was working for. I'm not working for a ghost. So the family was pissed at me. They're pissed. They're pissed. They're pissed. Finally, the trial starts and I'm just kicking the crap out of every witness. And it's clear that I've turned the tide and we're winning the case. And we ended up getting acquittals and, and, and hung the jury on the other counts. And all of a sudden the family, they love me. They hated me. Then they loved me. John's mother, who uh, was pissed at me because I was disrespecting her, her uh, husband, dead husband. I remember she called me up during the trial and told me, you know, you're almost as good as Bruce Cutler. And I laughed. I'm thinking, my God, on, on Bruce's best day. And I love Bruce. He wasn't pulling this off. The luck that, that Bruce had in his trials with John's father were because the juries were oftentimes fixed by Sammy Gravano. Anyway, you have to trust my judgment as a defense lawyer. I've been doing this for 31 years. If you don't, well, I'm not changing. I'll listen to anyone's ideas, but I have to go with my judgment in the end. Anyway, the judge didn't want to hear any of the excuses or explanations as to how Inigo ended up in this situation. And as I said, I pivoted and I wanted to focus on things that I thought would work. I just cut right to the chase. I look at my notes and pages like two through 11 of my notes that I spent hours on gone. You just, you just ignore them. This is how life is. And what I focused on was the fact that, well, uh, he suffered in ways that the average defendant did not suffer from in prison. He was unable to see his London-based fiance more than like two or three times during the entire two years he was in prison because of COVID. She was in London. She couldn't come here. She couldn't see him. Everybody else got visits when they were allowing visits. He couldn't. He had a daughter who was born while he was in prison. He never even met his daughter. That was a big deal, right? I thought so, that he wasn't able to see his daughter yet. She's two years old almost. The COVID restrictions in prison were brutal. Every time he went for a proffer with the government, when he came back, they required him to quarantine by himself for 14 days after. That happened five times. And I brought up the cooperation that he provided, although it didn't rise to the level of getting an official cooperation agreement from the government. As I said, they did uh, say that he was honest and he was helpful and provided some valuable information. As I said, anything helps. You're throwing a bunch of stuff against the wall and hope that some of it sticks. And indeed, when the judge did sentence him below the 10-year advisory minimum, he said all the reasons I just gave you now were the reasons he was going lower. And I uh, attacked the government's claim that he had run away to Vanuatu just to avoid extradition because it was ridiculous. It's good for the press, and the press is usually at a very low level of understanding the case because they're not criminal lawyers and they're frankly lazy and dumb. Uh, oftentimes, parts of the press, sometimes they're not. You get great reporters sometimes. For the most part, they're idiots. The truth is, is he was living openly on Vanuatu. And yes, they didn't have an extradition treaty, but he traveled from there to countries that did have extradition treaties in his own name during this period. So how could he possibly be accused of running there to hide out forever when he's traveling to places that he could have been easily arrested at? He's traveling under his real name on planes. You can find out who's on a plane. They never sought to arrest him then. And the government didn't really fight that, and the judge uh, backed off that issue at all. And as for the claim that he had no remorse for his victims, and that was just, again, bullshit and contrived. It was by the government. They're working with the press. Everybody's got no remorse. No remorse. Which is ridiculous. He admitted his wrongdoings to his victims before he went to Vanuatu. He cooperated with the government, admitted what he had done. 
he helped them untangle the, some of the competing ownership interests of his victims. And finally, he even spoke to the lawyers for some of his victims before the sentencing. He didn't have to. If he had no remorse or any concern about his uh, victims, he would have told them all to drop dead, and he didn't. And I had to be careful not to trash the victims, even though many of them were really wealthy people, some of them uh, varying levels of obnoxiousness. They made plenty of money, as I said, with Inigo before they became victims themselves. Some were making documentaries with Netflix. Some refused to speak to reporters unless they were paid, even if they were multimillionaires themselves. These were not the most sympathetic of victims, but they're still victims. You can't trash them to the judge because the judge would have gone bonkers and again, he would have taken it out on Inigo. Finally, I brought up some other fraud cases, art fraud cases in, in federal courts in New York, but the problem is that the the fraud numbers were grossly lower in all these cases. As I said, Inigo's was really historically large. Some of the defendants had actually received cooperation agreements. The one woman had been pushed into it by her abusive husband. It wasn't the same. Um, it wasn't a leader like, like Inigo was led to be. And the sentences, regardless, though, were very, very low. But as I said, uh, they were not in the media like Inigo's, and his was worse than all of theirs in every possible way. But, you know, you give it a shot. You try to convince the judge that these cases are similar. There were some similarities, but certainly not enough. Finally, the judge gave Inigo 84 months, seven years, but I instantly asked for what's called the recommendation for the Residential Drug Abuse Program, RDAP, which takes a year off the sentence if you complete the 12-month program, and you also get six months in halfway house or home confinement if you complete the program. And look, any way you can to lower the sentence, you do it. 84 months, if I can take a year off, well, again, that's a year. So uh, you only have to serve 85% of the time as it is. The rest of it, you get off for a good time. So 85% of 84 months was 71 months, 12 months taken off for that RDAP program, gets him down to around 59 and change. He'd get six months, I thought, of home confinement for completion of the RDAP. And now we're down to about 53 months, and he had been in jail for 24 months at the time. So the total amount of time that he would have to serve from that point forward was 29 months until he was released. I'm not saying it was a great sense, but it was only 29 more months. And it's easy for me to say, I don't have to actually do the time. No one wants to be in prison, no matter how short the sentence is. And he suffered under very bad conditions inside the MDC. But Considering the scale of the fraud, it was ginormous. I thought he did pretty well. I was hoping for less. You always try to get better, but it is what it is. And I, you know, thought about it as I was feeling in every case after a sentence. I always have second uh, thoughts, second guesses of myself. Could I have done more? What could I have done? Because a lot of this is on your feet, and you can't really just sit and caucus as to what the right decision is. You have to just run with it. So I would always think after, what could I have done more? But then I saw that Michael Avenatti, the disgraced lawyer who stole the money from Stormy Daniels, he only stole a few hundred thousand dollars from his client. It was similar to Inigo in the sense that he defrauded someone who depended upon him. He received four years in prison in the same courthouse. The difference is that there was no general deterrence with Avenatti because a lawyer stealing a few hundred thousand, hardly lawyers need to be told not to steal from their clients. And plenty of lawyers have gone to jail for stealing from clients. So I thought that a few hundred thousand dollars of fraud and getting four years 
compared to seven years with a year off for the drug program for stealing 86 million. I thought that Inigo did pretty well, all things considered. And then there was a case with a pharmacist that came in federal court in New York right after as well that I read. A pharmacist received 51 months for stealing $7.2 million in, uh, in federal uh, reimbursements, four and change years for stealing less than 10% of what Inigo did and receiving a sentence that was more than half. Again, it wasn't such a surprise that Inigo got what he did. I thought he did pretty well in comparison, but of course you still want to do better. I'm going to take a quick break here because I'm choking. This COVID is killing me and I'll be back in a, in a second and we'll go on to some topics in the news. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. We're back. And uh, just some quick topics in the news. Um, one of them is Iran is, it was revealed, is now hacking computers inside children's hospitals. Could you get any lower? The U.S., if you can believe, as they're begging Iran to uh, sign on to this, uh, back on to this 2015 nukes agreement, they're allowing Iran to sell some of their sanctioned oil on the global markets, even though they haven't signed on to this old nukes deal. Joe Biden, uh, fuck Joe Biden, is reporting that he needs to be bringing down the record high gas prices. And what way to do it is to get more oil into the market. And what could be better than letting a Muslim, the worst Muslim terror state in existence, let them sell their oils to lower the prices to get more of a glut in there and perhaps bring prices down, get demand lower, get the prices lower. And of course, they're just going to use the money to kill more Americans and kill more of our allies. But it's more important that Joe Biden's poll numbers go up than we actually punish the worst Muslim terror state in the history of the world. Joe Biden, who vowed to destroy the oil industry when he ran for president, who promised to stop new drilling on public lands and in, and in federal waters in America, is thinks it's better to let, again, Iran sell their oil, which of course makes no sense. But look, I'm, I can't keep saying, I can't keep beating the same drum. But what I thought was interesting, again, is the fact that it was revealed that despite us begging Iran uh, to do what we want and to come back into this deal, it finds that we find out that Iranian government-backed hackers were behind an attempted hack of the Boston Children's Hospital computer network last year. That's what the FBI's director, Chris Ray, said, calling it one of the most despicable cyber attacks I've ever seen. Well, naturally, if you're trying to hack a children's hospital computers, you're obviously trying to affect medication. Um, you're trying to kill these kids. I mean, there's no other explanation what they're trying to do. The FBI helped to thwart the hackers before they did any damage. But this is the kind of stuff that Iran's involved in. They're trying to kill our children. And we're still negotiating with them? I think about that, how sick that is, how utterly demented that is. This barely got any news because, of course, the leftist press loves uh, Muslim terror. And, uh, you know, you know why. Because they hate Israel and Iran hates Israel, i.e. Jews. And that's why the mainstream press seems to fall in line with all the Muslim terror states. But again, Iran is trying to kill our children, our sick children, and we're continuing to negotiate with them instead of dropping two nukes 
on Tehran. It's just utterly sick, but you know, look, I can just keep on saying it. You can listen. You don't have to listen. But I thought that it was uh, crazy that we're allowing this sort of Muslim terror and not even getting upset about it. Why wouldn't we get upset about it? PGA, the Professional Golf Association, they get upset about Muslim terror. But of course, um, they took such a moral stand against the new Saudi Arabian golf tour. And they're claiming the reason why they're upset about it is because of Saudi Arabia's dismal um, record on civil rights. We're not concerned about Iran killing Americans and trying to kill our children. We're concerned about Saudi Arabia wanting to have a competing golf tour, which is incredible because for some reason, professional sports in America, they don't seem to have any problem in partnering with China, despite the fact that China is holding 2 million Muslims in concentration camps or the fact that they unleashed a deadly virus on the world. That's what they did. This was a, a, a bio uh, uh, attack, a biological attack on the world. But for some reason, the NBA, well, they have no problem with China. LeBron James has no problem with China. But the Saudis can't have a competing golf tour. Get it? I mean, China, beyond the fact that they unleashed this uh, virus on us and, and have the Uyghurs, the Muslim uh, population in, in concentration camps, they've got the population control methods, forced labor, arbitrary detention, in these camps, torture, physical and sexual abuse, mass surveillance, family separations. They repress cultural and religious expression. But that's China. Nobody seems to have a problem with that. But the Saudis, you know, that's the problem. The Saudis are enemies of Iran. Iran's not a problem. China's not a problem. But the Saudis, for some reason, who and, and the reason that they're claiming that uh, the, the PGA and all the harumphing uh, sports writers, the reason they're claiming that the Saudis are so bad is that they killed this degenerate terror-supporting reporter who has had American citizenship named Jamal Khashoggi. This guy w was a Muslim Brotherhood supporter. That means terrorist supporter. He hated America. He openly hated Jews. He questioned the Holocaust. Naturally, all the liberals that supported him had no problem with his anti-Semitism because to the left, anti-Semitism is standard accepted fair. I was frankly thrilled that Khashoggi was killed. He was killed inside the Saudi embassy in, in Istanbul in, in Turkey. I felt that the Saudis did us all a favor. Uh, they used a bone saw to cut him up inside the embassy to get his body out of there. I hoped that he was still breathing when they used the bone saw. Who cares about Jamal Khashoggi? He's a terror supporter. He's a Jew hater. I passed out candy when he died, when I learned that he died to children. You're saying that's grotesque, Jeff. How could you pass out candy to children? Some innocent man is killed. Well, that's what the Palestinians do. The Palestinians do it when they kill innocent Israeli children. They pass out candy to children. They celebrate in the streets. So you love the Palestinians so much, the liberals do. So I'm sure you don't have a problem with me doing what Palestinians do. Except Khashoggi was not an innocent child. He was a terrorist supporter. So if it's okay for Palestinians to pass out candy when they kill innocent children, it's okay for me to pass out candy when Jamal Khashoggi is killed. I'm thrilled about it. Anyway, 
So let's just stop acting like we give a damn about, again, this scumbag Muslim terror supporter. He's dead. The world is a better place for it. Kudos to the Saudis for doing it. And the PGA can stop clutching their pearls about the horrible things the Saudis have done. If you have a beef with the Saudis, say it for the real reason, a good reason, about the fact that they had a role in 9-11, that 15 of the 19 hijackers were Saudis, and that the Saudis were funding al-Qaeda. That's what you should have a beef with, not Jamal Khashoggi. Yes, the Saudis were a terror state, but they've largely reformed since then. Why? Why did they reform? Because uh, the Iranians are terrorizing them. They're committing terror attacks on, on Saudi Arabia land. That's all it takes to suddenly wake up and decide you no longer uh, want to commit terror against America or against Israel. Once they realized that Iran was trying to overthrow them, they suddenly became warm to Israel because Israel is the only force in the Middle East, in the Middle East even capable of not just resisting Iran, but destroying Iran. <clears throat> That's all it took. It was for selfish reasons. But who cares? what the reasons are for. You're dealing with Muslim nations. You're not finding a good and decent ally. You're taking the best of what you can get. For the most part, they're all scumbags. Look at Turkey. Turkey's a terrorist state and they're part of NATO. You take what you can get. And the Saudi leadership genuinely is normalizing ties with Israel for not just these reasons relating to security against the Iranian terrorists, but also for economic reasons. Why harm your economy to support the terrorists in Palestine who are backed by Iran, the very country trying to destroy you in Saudi Arabia? It's not like the Palestinians ever appreciated anything the Saudis ever did for them by castigating Israel, because that's how the Palestinians are. They bite every hand that feeds them. You can never do enough for them. It's all coming to them, which is why virtually no Arab nation even helps the Palestinians anymore. Why give money to degenerate terrorists uh, who support the, the very people trying to kill you uh, as uh, the Palestinians support the Iranians who are trying to kill the Saudis? Somehow the Arab world learned that the Palestinians supporting them in Iran is bad for business, but somehow the Democratic Party in America, which uh, happily has notorious America haters and Israel haters in the squad, Somehow they haven't learned that supporting those terrorists are bad. Next subject is, I don't know if you saw in the news, remember those firebombing lawyers, the pair of lawyers in New York who were caught throwing Molotov cocktails at an NYPD vehicle parked outside of Brooklyn police station during the George Floyd riots in June of 2020? There was a Pakistani lawyer, this woman who actually threw this homemade uh, homemade incendiary device. Her name was Yaruj Rockman. Both she and her co-conspirator, a fellow named Collinford Mattis, he was driving the minivan that she was driving in. They were charged with domestic terrorism. In an interview that this Rockman woman gave on the street less than an hour before she threw the Molotov cocktail, she defended the use to the media of violence against the police. And she gave an interview. She knew what she was doing, publicly gave an interview to the public. And naturally, she was wearing a Palestinian terror scarf while she gave the interview, because that's, that's what terrorists, Muslim terrorists love. They love that shit. That was popularized by the genocidal terrorist maniac Yasser Arafat, the Egyptian-born terrorist who was the father 
of the Palestinian people who were actually invented in the 60s. And she said in her interview, I think this protest is a long time coming. She said that nearly Barclays Center in Brooklyn on May 30th, 2020. This shit won't ever stop until we fucking take it all down. And that's why the anger is being expressed tonight in this way. She was 31 at the time, and she knew enough, and she was educated enough to know what terrorism is. But she said in the video before throwing the Molotov cocktail that violence against cops was understandable, adding that people are angry because the police are never held accountable. This has got to stop, and the only way they hear, the only way they hear us is through violence, through the means that they use, she said. We've got to use the masses' tools, that's what she said. That means master when you're a slave. In a series of text messages between uh, Rockman and her uh, co-conspirator, Mattis, who went to Princeton, by the way, and I guess his brainwashing to become a domestic terrorist started there, maybe before, <clears throat> he, uh, he encouraged her to go burn down one PP, meaning one police plaza. That's the police headquarters where there are people inside. So they're burning police vehicles and they're going to burn down one police plaza. Sounds like terrorism to me, doesn't it? To you too, right? I mean, if that isn't terrorism, domestic terrorism, I don't know what is. I mean, it sounds like they're dangerous to the community if released on bail. To me, doesn't it? I mean, they're unrepentant domestic terrorists wanting to burn cops alive. Naturally, the federal government sought detention for the bail hearing. That means no bail. And when I represented uh, John Gotti Jr., they also sought detention. They also sought detention. When I successfully got bail for an 86-year-old Andrew Russo last year, he was alleged to be the boss of the Colombo family. The government doctor said that he was suffering from severe dementia and Alzheimer's, but somehow the government felt that both Gotti Jr. and Andrew Russo were both dangerous to the community and shouldn't be released. But the two young lawyers who firebombed the police vehicle, who advocated for publicly for violence against the police and planned to burn down one police plaza? Well, guess what? They somehow managed to get 56 former prosecutors, federal prosecutors, signing a letter asking the Court of Appeals to give them bail. Included in this list were at least one of the federal prosecutors who fought against me for bail for John Gotti Jr. in 2004. John Gotti Jr. was a danger to the community. But these two domestic terrorists who want to burn cops alive, this former prosecutor thought should be bailed? That's kind of interesting, isn't it? This is what has infected prosecutors' offices all over the country, leftists who somehow think that violent, unrepentant domestic terrorists who tell the public during interviews that they want to harm the police, that they're not dangerous to the community. But an alleged mafia boss who wouldn't be able to leave his house on bail conditions, wouldn't be able to even have any visitors in his house. That's a guy who can't be trusted to be out on bail. Anyway, <clears throat> the reason I'm telling you this story now is that these two domestic terrorists pled guilty last October, knowing that the feds would be seeking a 10-year jail sentence due to an enhancement for, you guessed it, terrorism. I mean, let's be clear. This isn't foreign terrorism like Al-Qaeda or Iran, but this is textbook definition of domestic terrorism. Is there any question? Then something unusual happened. Remember, as I just said, that the prosecutor's offices have become infected with leftists. 
Last week, the Biden administration agreed to a massive reduction of the charges in a plea agreement against these two lawyers. And it's going to result in only a couple of years of jail time at most. The, uh, now the recommendation is 18 to 24 months instead of 10 years. What's bizarre is that the, the plea agreement allowed for the prior plea agreement from last year to be discarded, tossed out. And it reduced their exposure by, you know, from 10 years to 18 months. That never happens. Never, 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 never. Never, 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 never. For some reason, the Biden administration, their Department of Justice, which is no longer objective, is clearly a political arm of a leftist administration. They allowed these two degenerate domestic terrorists to withdraw their earlier plea and plead guilty instead to conspiring simply to assemble the Molotov cocktails and damage a car, an NYPD car. One of the defendants, this Collinford Mattis, was accused of having a store of firebombs in his vehicle and was videotaped handing them out to other rioters to commit more violence. Yet now he'll be sentenced like he committed like a minor tax fraud. That's a pretty big contrast to the harsh position that the Biden administration, their Justice Department, took on, uh, against the many people that were arrested for the January 6th riots at the Capitol, don't you think? Attorney General Merrick Garland cited the threat to police officers in the January 6th riot in pledging an unprecedented effort to charge and convict those involved on any level in that riot. So when you're a Republican and you harm the police or march on January 6th, you go to jail for years. When you're a leftist scumbag burning down a city and trying to firebomb cops, just months in jail with the Biden Department of Justice. Talk about a massive double standard and a clear difference of application of the law when it comes to Republicans and Democrats. Can you imagine that we live in a country where the administration wants to go soft on domestic terrorists wearing a Palestinian terror scarf who's happily discussing killing the police and burning down police headquarters and doesn't even try to hide her feelings. She's so emboldened, she doesn't care that she's saying it to the press, to the media. That's how sick this is. Think about it. And, and you know, to touch on this subject about January 6th, last week, Jack Del Rio, the defensive coordinator of the Washington Commanders, that's their football team. They used to be the Redskins, which was, you know, a slur against, against Indians. Jack Del Rio spoke to reporters about a tweet that he had posted earlier in the week regarding the January 6th committee hearings, which were broadcast in primetime for some reason last week. Actually, we know the reason why. It's to try to convince the country before midterm elections in November that Trump is the problem in the country, not Joe Biden, who has destroyed the country in ways that Trump could never even have dreamed of. Average families are paying an extra 460 a month for household items gas, food. Uh, Democrats think that people give a damn about uh, some idiotic protest riot from two years ago. So they put it on in prime time to try to divert people from the fact that they're starving, which is what's happening. Anyway, in his tweet, Del Rio asked why the George Floyd riots of 2020 were not being treated the same as the riot at the Capitol on January 6th. And before getting into the ramifications of each riot, let's just look at some of the facts. These are objective facts. 25 people were killed in the George Floyd riots. One person was killed at the Capitol on January 6th, and it was done by a Capitol policeman 
who killed an unarmed protester. The cop wasn't charged, and his name was hidden from the public for months. So 25 to 1. Arson, vandalism, and looting across 20 states that occurred in, in late May to June 8th from the George Floyd riots, this was like two weeks, caused approximately $1 to $2 billion in damages nationally, the highest recorded damages from civil disorder in U.S. history, and surpassed the record set during the 1992 L.A. riots. More than 1,000 buildings were burned or damaged in Minneapolis alone in the days after George Floyd was killed. The riot at the Capitol, $1.5 million worth of damages to the Capitol building. Not, hardly, not $1 to $2 billion that was caused by the George Floyd rioters. Now, I'm not saying that the January 6th riots weren't idiotic. They were, and they were ginned uh, up by a sitting president who was an idiot himself. Complete craziness. But do we really think that that was actually going to turn into something? Let's be real. Come on. For the great part, the amount of damage that occurred was tiny, uh, meaning that the, 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 the rioters were not violent. Only nine people were even charged with weapons-related charges. Compare that to the George Floyd riots. There's no comparison. And again, I don't believe that the January 6th riots were actually a realistic insurrection. If it was an insurrection, it would be a minor one with no chance to succeed. But Jack Del Rio's major mistake was opening his mouth publicly as a conservative voicing his opinions. He had to be out of his mind. Sports are now fully leftist endeavors. You must wear the pride flag on your uniform, which is ironic because most of the athletes that are being forced to wear the rainbow, they were stuffing effeminate kids in lockers in high school, and now they're forced to visibly support gays on their uniforms or risk being canceled, so you just have to suck it up. Jack Del Rio stated, What did I ask? A simple question. Why are we not looking into these things? If we're going to talk about it, why are we not looking into these things? Because it's kind of hard for me to say uh, I can realistically look at it. I see the images on TV. People's livelihoods are being destroyed. Businesses are being burned down. No problem at all, meaning the George Floyd riots. And then we have a dust up at the Capitol. Nothing was burned down, and we're going to make that a major deal. I just think it's kind of two standards. And if we apply the same standard, we're going to be reasonable with each other. Let's have a discussion. That's all it was. Let's have a discussion. Talking about his tweet. Well, that was a mistake. The reaction from the leftists in charge of professional sports was quick. I mean, they came for his head. So again, keep in mind that for decades, the team refused to change their name from the Redskins, which was a slur against indigenous Americans or whatever the the fuck American Indians are allowed to be called today. I think it's indigenous people. You can't say American Indians anymore. Changes every week. Coach Ron Rivera said, Coach Del Rio's comments do not reflect the organization's views and are extremely hurtful to our great community. As we saw last night in the hearings, this is the day after the hearings on TV, what happened on the Capitol on January 6, 2021, was an act of domestic terrorism. A group of citizens attempted to overturn the results of a free and fair election, and as a result, lives were lost one, and the Capitol building was damaged 1.5 million. But this is my favorite part of his statement. Coach Del Rio did apologize for his comments, and he understands the distinction between the events of that dark day and peaceful protests, which are a hallmark of our democracy. He does have the right to voice his opinion as a citizen of the United States, and it most certainly is his constitutional right to do so. However, words have consequences, and his words hurt a lot of people in our community. 
I want to make it clear that our organization will not tolerate any equivalency between those who demanded justice in the wake of George Floyd's murder and the actions of those on January 6th who sought to topple our government. Del Rio is told by Ron Rivera, the coach, of course you have a right to free speech, as long as it's the free speech that the thought police of the NFL deems appropriate, which is the leftist talking points. And then he fined Del Rio $100,000 for exercising the very free speech that Rivera just trumpeted that is sacred to America. Naturally, Del Rio had to suck it up. He deleted his uh, Twitter account because the NFL is all about free speech, don't you know? Think about how sick this is to not even acknowledge the fact that dozens of people killed in the George Floyd riots, the billions of dollars of damage. That's not peaceful protests. Those were people shitting in their beds, burning down their own towns. But the NFL is now a leftist institution, and Jack Del Rio was lucky that he got to keep his job. God help them, help him, if uh, Washington lets up too many points in the first game of the season, you'll be fired. People demanding justice in the name of George Floyd, who killed 25 people and billions in damage, is okay. Daring to suggest that the January 6th riots are being overblown, <clears throat> well, that's a crime. And that's just totally sick. And you notice I, there was no uh, letter, supporting letter from 56 former federal prosecutors on behalf of the dozens of January 6th defendants who were denied bail despite not committing any violence at all. But instead, those, those leftist former federal prosecutors, they helped two violent domestic terrorists who firebombed the police. And just so you know, if you think these former federal prosecutors, who are now defense lawyers, at least in theory, if you think that they really are defense lawyers, you're dreaming. One of the Chapo prosecutors, who now masquerades as a defense lawyer, congratulated the government last week for Chapo's cert petition to the United States Supreme Court being denied. That was like Chapo's last gasp legally. So this defense lawyer publicly congratulated the government and the prosecutors for winning it. This guy's a defense lawyer now. Maybe keep your mouth shut. How would you like to be represented by him knowing that he's congratulating the government against you? The government, the same government office that's prosecuting you, that's your lawyer? He's congratulating the government? You can bet that he'll fight hard for you if you're charged with a crime as long as it's a leftist cause. This is why former federal prosecutors who become defense lawyers are such utter clowns. I hate to say it, but it's true. They're very good at harumphing. They're very good at virtue signaling. They're very good at talking about their deep bench and patting themselves on the back <clears throat> and going on LinkedIn and, and liking every possible cause to, 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 to virtue signal. But they're completely full of shit. They're, they're after your money. They're not going to fight for you. And speaking of double standards, this is the last uh, story. I can barely get this out. I'm choking half to death from this COVID. Speaking of double standards, a guy armed with a gun, ammunition, zip ties, a knife, pepper spray, and a screwdriver, and other gear, who admitted he wanted he was coming to Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh's house to kill him because of his position on abortion. He was arrested outside the judge's home. Now, in fairness, he called 9-11. God forbid the police could actually find him. You know, you'd think they'd be set up outside the house looking at anybody near his house and anybody shady because how crazy... Uh, the left has been in terms of threatening these justices once 
the leak came out about the Roe v. Wade opinion being uh, overturned, there's barely a mention in the press about this. Barely a mention. Made the very bottom of the New York Times front page just a few words. Chuck Schumer, uh, New York's uh, pathetic senator, threatened Kavanaugh publicly a while back saying, we're coming for you. That was a threat. No question. He didn't apologize for his incendiary remarks, which could have caused this near murder of Kavanaugh. They don't apologize at all. And neither should any sane conservative for hating them and wanting them gone too. Don't apologize. They don't apologize. We shouldn't apologize either. This is a civil war. Get used to it. It's us against them. It is a battle of ideologies. If you want to live in a country where our assets are being plundered by the far left, where inflation is robbing people of their hard work, where reparations and leftist causes are all the leadership cares about, where crime is destroying our cities due to leftist prosecutors, keep voting for the dog shit that's in office right now. If you want to work hard and make something of yourself without being told that you're a racist asshole, We'll join with the other 70% of America, including most minority groups now, who oppose Joe Biden and kick the liberals out in November. I can barely talk. The COVID's got me. The China virus has got me. I'll be back next week. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. You can find me on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, and anywhere podcasts can be found. Hopefully next week, I'll be able to talk a little better. Thanks for tuning in.